Our God, we come to a portion of your truth that has suffered much at the hands of false teachers, but it has also proven a challenge for all who desire to be faithful to your word. We desire to be faithful to your word. We desire to know you truly as you have revealed yourself. Do enlighten our minds to see the truth revealed in the holy page. Help us to learn, but not to learn as academics or cold, distant observers. Help us to learn today as those who would learn of you and love you and worship you and adore you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have this continuing series of Bible basics revisited that we return to after uh, we study a portion in the Gospel of Matthew. And right now we are in a few sermons about the Holy Spirit. I expect we'll have one more next week. And I just want to say, though, that um, it, it, so that you don't panic if, if we don't seem to progress fast enough through the outline, that if, if I end up getting lit up on parts of this sermon, which I think there's a greater than 50, 50 odds, uh, then it will just be rolled over to next week. And uh, because I, I'm not going to rush through this. This is very, very important for us as Christians, both uh, as to our knowledge and as to practice, to understand the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. The scripture speaks of us, of God the Holy Spirit, from literally the first chapter to the last chapter, as we saw last week. And we learned last week that the Holy Spirit is fully God, that all of the perfections that make God the unique person he is, love, holiness, righteousness, all of those perfections uh, characterize the Holy Spirit as fully as they do the Father and the Son. And we saw that the Holy Spirit is fully a person. He's not a force. He's not an it. He's not a thing. He's a he. He is a subject uh, subsisting in the one essence of the one God. And we saw that the Holy Spirit dwells in Christians, individually and corporately, Christians as individuals and Christians as we assemble. And, and he is what makes us a sanctuary, a place where God is present and God is worshiped. This is by the work and the presence of God, the Holy Spirit. So that was last week. Today now, we're going to look at some, just some, two sets of three of the works of the Holy Spirit. And they are, they are many. They're more than we'll look at this week. Don't think we've mastered it uh, when we get through this portion today. But uh, of course, all of the works of God are the works of all of God. By which I mean there is nothing that the Son does apart from Father and Spirit. There's nothing the Spirit does apart from Father and Son. But there are some works that the Scripture particularly, some works in creation that the Scripture particularly attributes to one of the persons of the Trinity. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. We see this in two ways. In, in some of his works, he expressly joins the Father and Son in a work that they do. We'll see that right at the start. And in other works, they're particularly ascribed to God the Holy Spirit. So as I say, we're going to look at some of his works today and under two general headings. The first then, Roman numeral one, is his past and external works. His past and external works. And when I say external, I mean external to you and me. These are not his works particularly within the heart of a, of a saint, but these are his works, as you see very quickly, uh, in the world around us. And the first work is the work of creation. 
capital letter A. And so to learn of that, turn, where else would you turn but to Genesis chapter 1. So turn there with me, please. Genesis chapter 1. And the first verses of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. So here's this image in verse 2. The Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Now, this word translated uh, hovering in Hebrew, merachefeth, is only used two times in the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses. He uses it here, and he uses it in Deuteronomy 32.11. Now, before I talk to you about that, let me just say that you'll read in some translations, mostly in those by liberals or commentaries by liberals, and they will translate this verse, the wind of God, which is theoretically possible because ruach can mean breath, it can mean wind, it can be spirit. Some of them say a mighty wind and, and remove God altogether because sometimes the word God is used as like a superlative uh, modifier. But uh, I argue that the translation spirit of God is is the only correct translation. And one of the reasons is this word machefeth, translated hovering. It's used in Deuteronomy 32, 11. I'll just read that to you, where uh, Moses is speaking of God and his care of Israel, God and his, his provisions for Israel. And speaking of Yahweh, he says, like an eagle that stirs up its nest that hovers over its young, he spreads his wings and caught them. He spread his wings and caught them. He carried them on his pinions. So what is the picture there? The picture of is, is, is of a protective eagle uh, hovering over its children to protect, to care for, to guard and provide for them. That's not the picture of a wind. Wind doesn't hover. Wind blows past. But this is a hovering that's protective, that's caregiving. And that's the picture that we have here. God has just spoken the universe into existence. Like he said, he's poured out all the, all the Lego pieces and he's going to build them into what he wants. And the Spirit of God is hovering protectively, is hovering in a caregiving way over the waters here, over the surface of the waters. He stands ready to act in the process of creation. And we're so used to this verse, but we shouldn't just, you know, so verse one says God creates everything and then verse 2 happens. He mentions the Spirit of God. And then we get back to creation. No, the Spirit of God is in introduced in verse 2, and we are to think that he continues to work with God in creation. He is God the Spirit. He works with God the Father and God the Son, as we will see, in the process of creation. It's a personal image of the work of the person of the Holy Spirit. So who is this Spirit of God that we see in verse 2? Well, if that was the only verse we had in the Bible, it would be very puzzling, and there would be a number of possible explanations about what it means. But thank God, it's not the only verse in the Bible. We have the rest of the Bible to cast light on all of the Bible, and we'd be fools not to look at what it says. So let me just suggest to, to plug in, you can just dash, uh, dash these down. Yeah, that's the word I want. You can just dash these down quickly. 1 Corinthians 8, 6a, the first part of 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. One God, the Father, from whom are all things. 
And then there's the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 3. You know that one. All things came into being through him. Through whom? Jesus, the Logos, the Word. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So God the Father, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, all things came into being through him. God the Son, John says, all things came into being through him. And so now factor in the fact that we saw last week that the Holy Spirit is God. It's no surprise to see the Spirit of God also participating in the work of creation because all of the works of God are the works of all of God. The persons are all involved in each of the works of God. So what do you see here then in creation if we put it in a Trinitarian frame as I think we should? Well, we see the Father, the Father, the originator, speaks his word and the Spirit executes the will of God. This is exactly what we see here. The Father creates all things. Then he, he, the Spirit of God is present. Of course he is because he's God. And then God speaks the word. What, what word does he speak? Yehi or, let light be. And what happens? Light comes into existence. How does that happen? By the Spirit of God. The Father speaks the word and the Spirit executes it. You see? Father, Son, and Spirit just in the first few verses just in the few, first few verses of the Bible. And so we see characteristically the Spirit is the one who carries out, who executes the will of God. The Lord Jesus is the agent of the will of the Father in creation, and the Spirit is the one who executes and applies the will. And so you see here, uh, if we just continue, verse 4, and God saw the light was good. And again and again we see that, except Monday. I just remind you that every time. Monday's not called good, but every other day is called good until we get to the end, and then what do we see? He sees all that he has made, and behold, it was very good. So what is the Holy Spirit doing here? He is perfecting God's work of creation until it reaches the point where it is very good. He is working with Father and Son to bring creation to a perfect conclusion. And you see that once again, turn here to Psalm 33, verse 6. When you view it in this light, this is a very revealing verse. Wonderful psalm, but like I'm going to say, a psalm is not a good psalm, but this is a wonderful psalm. Psalm 33. Now, with this in mind, look at verse 6. By the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. By the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. Now, that word translated breath is ruach, the word for spirit, translated spirit. So I would probably translate it by the spirit of his mouth. But as I, as I taught you last week, he's called the spirit because that is the picture of him being breathed forth from father and son. The father eternally begets the Son, the Father and Son eternally breathe forth the Spirit. And so the Father speaks the Word, by the Word of Yahweh the heavens were made, and by the Spirit from His mouth all their host. And so you see the Holy Spirit executing and perfecting the creating work of God. So Indeed, the Old Testament is the seedbed of the doctrine of the Trinity. I would never agree with somebody who says the Old Testament is monotheistic and then in the New Testament, 
suddenly the Trinity just pops into existence. Not at all. The Old Testament is the seedbed of the Trinity. The great theologian B.B. Warfield just described, I don't know you could describe this any better, he said that the Old Testament is like a, a dark, richly furnished room, that everything's there, but with the coming of the New Testament, the light is turned on, and suddenly you see more clearly what was already there. And the doctrine of the Trinity, I, I certainly argue, is already there in the Old Testament. But with the New Testament, a brighter light is shined and we see more clearly. So, the Holy Spirit first then is involved in the work of creation. Of course he is. He is God. But secondly, he's also involved in the work of preservation. That's letter B. The work of preservation. Turn to Psalm 104. And our tight focus will be verses 29 through 30. So Psalm 104, a great creation hymn, creation song. And the psalmist is talking about the works of Yahweh in creation. I love verse 24. How numerous are your works, O Yahweh, and wisdom you've made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. And then he goes and he details in them of these, a number of these creations of God. Uh, and he names them. And now at verse 27, they all wait for you to give them their food in due season. How often does that happen? All the time. This is a constant. This is not, you know, thousands of years ago at creation thing. This is a continual process to give them <clears throat> their food in due season. You give to them, they gather it up. You open your hand and they're satisfied with good. You hide your face and they're dismayed. You take away their spirit, they breathe their last and return to the dust. You send forth your spirit. They are created and you renew the face of the ground. Now what this speaks of is not the initial act of creation by which all things came into existence from nothing. This speaks of the ongoing act of creation by which of course we, we read that things die and we've noticed that. We who've had pets have noticed that they die. Everything dies, but if they just died, then, well, there would have been nothing by now. But there is an ongoing process of life, a new life. And the psalmist says that this is the work of the Holy Spirit, keeping creation alive, continuing to give life to creation, give provision to creation. <clears throat> so you see, <clears throat> sorry, the Holy Spirit brings God's presence to creation. God is not as the deists imagine. He doesn't set the world to spinning and then stand off and watch it from a distance. Well, no, if he did that, then it would have stopped existing. Moment by moment by moment, Yahweh, God the Creator, preserves the existence and the life of his creation. And it's through the Holy Spirit that he does that. The Holy Spirit executes the will of God in preserving his creation. As Jesus is the agent of that, the Holy Spirit executes that as we read in these, in these words. So uh, it is to God's doing, it is specifically to God the Holy Spirit's doing, that we can give thanks for the continued existence of our planet and the assurance that the planet will continue to exist and not be destroyed by, by cars and, and uh, bovine flatulence, uh, but will continue to exist until the Lord Jesus returns and sets up his kingdom by the work of God the Holy Spirit. So, 
He is active in the work of creation. He is active in the work of preservation. But, and we'll focus very closely here because this is just critical to Christian living. The act of revelation, the work of revelation and inscripturation. Letter C. Revelation and inscripturation. Now, I don't want to run the chance that anybody doesn't get what that means. And and I want to make just as simple as I can. Revelation specifically means making known the thoughts that God wants communicated. And inscripturation means writing those thoughts down. Now, this is absolutely crucial to understand that the Holy Spirit oversees that whole process. Because, well, I mean, literally, ever since the garden, it's been man's instinct to try to get out from under the authority of God. And even among the religious and even among converted Christians, if we don't watch out for it, there's always still that little remnant in the flesh that wants to lessen God's claim on us, to lessen his authority over us. And that always is at the point of contact. And what is the point of contact between God and his creation? It's his word. This is where we meet God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by feeling stirred up by psalms, right? And hymns. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by feeling stirred up by preachers' anecdotes, right? And smoke and mirrors and, and, and zip lines, no. No, hearing, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. This is where we come to know God. And so, if we're to escape God's authority, well, we've got to lessen the authority of the Word of God. We've, we've got to empty it of its godness, of, its, of, of the presence of God in it. So one of the ways that, it, that that's been done in the history of theology is for men who say, ah, oh, yes, the Holy Spirit puts the, his thoughts into the minds of prophets and apostles, but they're human, so they err when they write it down. It gets, it gets lost in translation. They have inerrant God thoughts, but they struggle and put it the best way they can. But of course, the Bible is a human book and it's full of errors because to err is human and, and men wrote the Bible, so that must be erroneous. Now, I always want to say, well, then evidently your statement you just made is erroneous. I mean, if you're a human and you say that the Bible has error because humans always err, I guess you're in error when you say the Bible has error, to which I can say Amen. You are indeed in error about that. But the Scripture is a different thing, and this is because of the work of the Holy Spirit. And we're brought to that right away in the first verse I want us to look at together. 2 Timothy 3.16. You say, I already know everything about that verse. Well, I love a challenge, so let me see if I can open it up for you in an arresting way. Because this, is just, this verse is absolute dynamite today and always. Paul is in this context... Preparing Timothy, well, in the context of this letter, he's preparing Timothy for the difficult times to come. And the practice of Timothy learning to hear God speak to his heart in a personal, individual way so that he can discern the Word of God for him in the days to come is something he never talks about (laughs) because that is no part of his preparation for the days to come. The only part of his preparation for the days to come is to remember what he's taught and stay in Scripture. Uh, Let me back up just a little bit. Verse 14, you continue in the things you learned and became convinced of, knowing from whom you learned them, and that since you were a baby, 
you've known the sacred writings which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And then the next chapter, uh, he's going to say, preach the word, verse 2. He will never ever tell him or anyone else to look for more words. But instead, to preach the word he's known since he was a baby, which is the Old Testament, and the word he's been taught by the apostles, which is the New Testament. So now, that's all preface to the verse we're going to focus on, which is verse 16. He says the sacred writings in verse 15, and that specifically means the Old Testament. But when he says in verse 16, all Scripture is God breathed, that word Scripture means both the Old and New Testament. Paul uses that word to refer to the gospel at Luke, of Luke in 1 Timothy 5, for instance. So Scripture is Old and New Testament. And what Paul says about all Scripture, he says, all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Now, if, if I were space age and not, not the old fuddy-duddy that I am, I'd have some sort of, a, you know, a multimedia thing where I could show you the Greek word and I, it would float around on the screen and stuff. It'd be very impressive. But sadly, there's just me and you and we'll have to talk about it. This word God-breathed, um, poorly handled in other translations by given by inspiration of God, but it's just one adjective, theopnostos, theopnostos. That is made up of two compounds. The word theo, if I say, if I Anglo it, it's theo, theos. Ah, you know what theos is. What's theos? God. Theos is God. What's pnostos, though? That is is related to the verb pneo, which means to breathe. The noun pneuma, which means breath or spirit. And so it is the breath of God. It is what God breathes. It is the product of God's breath. So what he's saying of Scripture is not that it breathes God, like we just we feel God when we read it, but that it itself is a product of the breath of God. That God exhaled and what we got was Scripture. Now do you see how well that fits in with what we've been learning about the work of the Holy Spirit? From the mind of God comes the work mediated through Christ and executed by the Holy Spirit. And so notice he does not say all the writers of Scripture were God-inspired and then they did their best. What does he say is God-breathed? It's in the verse. Don't look at me. Scripture is God-breathed. Scripture itself. So God the Holy Spirit so oversaw this process that not just what they thought, but what they wrote was actually the Word of God. So all Scripture, all of it and all parts of it, and you go through our membership class and you learn we believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. And plenary means all parts of it, from Genesis to Exodus, the history, the law, the morality, the theology, all of it is God-breathed. And God-breathed points us to the work of the Holy Spirit. It is pnostos by the pneuma. It is breathed by the breath of God, by the Spirit of God. So Scripture is the product of, Scripture is the work of the Holy Spirit of God. Now, um, let's look at one more verse, and then I'll really take off. Uh, The next verse is 2 Peter, a couple of verses. 2 Peter chapter 1. Oops. 2 Peter chapter 1. 
And he's talking about the basis of their faith. The basis they have for believing in Jesus Christ. It's, it didn't, it's not from myths. It's not from made-up stories. We were actually with him in the Mount of Transfiguration. But he says it's more than just that. It's more than just us telling you eyewitness uh, uh, truths about Christ. This prophetic word that you have, the Scripture, he wants to underscore two things. Know this first of all, that no, product, that no prophecy of Scripture comes by one's own interpretation. So his first statement is a negative statement. He wants to rule out the thought that what is in Scripture is the result of somebody just thinking in the backside of the desert. And he was just thinking one day and he thought, wouldn't it be lovely if God loved the world? Wouldn't it be lovely if God so loved the world that he gave his son? Hey, I think I'll write that down. That's catchy. He's saying that's not the way Scripture came into being. No Scripture was ever made by one's own interpretation. It did not originate from within the heart of the writer. And then another negative, for no prophecy was ever made by the will of man. So it never originates in man. Well, if the prophecy of Scripture doesn't come by human thinking and unwrangling and untangling, and if it doesn't originate by the will of man, then where does Scripture come from? Oh, he's happy we asked. He has the answer. But men being moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And as I pointed out in the past, this word moved by the Holy Spirit literally means carried by the Holy Spirit. So how did Isaiah ever get to speak in such detail about the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ 700 years before it happened? How did he ever get there? How did he ever reason his way there? Oh, he didn't reason his way there. Well, how did he ever produce the prophecy? Oh, he didn't produce the prophecy. How did he get there? He got there because he was carried there by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit carried him to this knowledge, and he wrote from God. So that what we have in Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, 12 is the words of God, as ministered through Isaiah by the Holy Spirit, you see. So this is, this is critically important to understand that, the, that the, the, what we have in Scripture is the work of the Holy Spirit. So here's a, here's a skeptic who, who says, like, like he's telling us something that, that is going to, you know, strike us like thunder and our, our faith is just going to collapse, you know, like, like a stack of marbles. He says to us, the Bible is written by men, he says. And because we have listened to this sermon, we all say, yes, men who were carried by the Holy Spirit. So you see, the Bible is a human book, but it's not just a human book. As Jesus is a man, but he's not just a man. The Bible is the Word of God, and it's the result of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So, let me bring out something that is very important about understanding this work of the Spirit in Scripture. We have today movements that particularly name the Holy Spirit. They are, they are Spirit-filled. Now, we're just struggling along here with Jesus and God's Word, just doing the best we can, but they're Spirit-filled. And what will you often see when you go to a Spirit-filled meeting? Well, you'll see a Spirit-filled man get up and spout an hour of absolute nonsense with very little or no scripture at all in it, but because he's led by the Holy Spirit. And if somebody like you or me, some fuddy-duddy, comes in and says, you know, 
it'd be really great if you just got into Scripture and talked about what Scripture says. We would be told, ah, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. To which we'd say, yeah, that is a verse in the Bible. So what's your point exactly? Well, we need to do, we need, we want to honor the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We need to go where the Holy Spirit leads us. Now, I have this thought that where we would honor the Holy Spirit is by giving the place that His work deserves. This is the grand work of the Holy Spirit. This scripture in your hand, you should never think or allow people to speak in a, in a denigrating way because this is the magnum opus of the Holy Spirit. This is the masterpiece of the Holy Spirit. This is the breath of God. This is a God-breathed book. And so if we want to honor uh, the mark of the ministry that honors the Holy Spirit, and we'll talk more about this next week, Lord willing, is, is a ministry that lifts up Christ, which the Holy Spirit loves to do, and that focuses on the Word of God, which the Spirit breathed out, which the Spirit carried men to write, you see. What, what was that just a, and then that happened thing? Now let's get to the real stuff. No, that, that's the real stuff. That's where God's opened his heart to us. That's where God says, you want to meet me? Meet me here. Because here's where I make myself known. This is the, this is the majestic, magnificent work of the Holy Spirit. So that, that there, as we see, is an explanation by Scripture of how this is the work of the Holy Spirit. He breathed this out. God breathed this out by the ministry of the Spirit. Men carried by God wrote, and there are many other verses say these same things, but those two are very um, powerful and very uh, useful verses to that end. So that is where it is explained. Now let me show where it is shown that this is the word of the Holy Spirit. If you just compare two verses... And there are many just like this. Let me read to you, and just listen, please. Let me read to you Jeremiah 31, 33. Jeremiah 31, 33. But this is the covenant by which I will cut, which I will cut with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. What did I just say? Declares Yahweh. I will put my laws within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. All right. Now turn to, turn to Hebrews chapter 10. And open your Bible and, and turn to this book. Hebrews chapter 10. And look at what he says in verses 15 and 16. And he's speaking about the new covenant. In verse 15 he says, And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. And I hope you're saying, hey, ah, that's the verse we just read from Jeremiah. Yes, that's right. He's quoting exactly what we just read from the prophet Jeremiah. Okay, so who said those words that he's quoting? Well, in Jeremiah, I had you repeat it. Who, who declared those words? Yahweh did. Who does he say said those words? It's in the text. The Holy Spirit, verse 15. So the word of Yahweh is the word of the Holy Spirit, or to put it another way, the word of the Holy Spirit is the word of Yahweh. You can say it either way. They're both equally true. And there are many, many verses that say that same thing. So if you want to hear the Holy Spirit speak, I want to hear the Holy Spirit speak. Where shall we go to find that? Just one place. The Word of God, the written Word of God. That's where the Holy Spirit speaks. 
My, we're having some dramatic weather. <laughs> Number three, we see this stated. We see it explained, shown. Now let's see it stated. I will just read to you Nehemiah 9.30. Nehemiah 9.30 is just a wonderful prayer at a revival, a prayer led by the Levites, just uh, worth reading and, and reading again and again. But as part of that, they're talking about what Yahweh has done to reach out to this erring and straying people who he keeps saving and they keep turning their backs on him. So what does, what does God do? Nehemiah 9.30 However, you bore with them for many years and testified to them by your spirit, by the hand of your prophets, yet they would not give ear. So you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. How did God testify? By his spirit, by the hands of the prophets. So again, it was the Holy Spirit who brought the word of God to them through the prophets. Mark 12, 36, let's turn there. It's brief, but it's worth it. Mark 12, 36. And what does the Lord Jesus say there? Well, he's, he's going to quote from Psalm 110. But what does he say in quoting from Psalm 110? He says, David himself said, what are the next words? In the Holy Spirit. I can't, I can't hear you. Said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. So Jesus, quoting the Old Testament, says the Old Testament is the word of the Holy Spirit. So mark well, this view that I'm teaching you is the view of Jesus Christ. That's why I'm teaching it to you. I don't want to have any other view. We don't want to have any other view. It's not some... Uh, you know, hidebound, unspiritual theologians saying this. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who walked about filled with the Holy Spirit, who calls the Old Testament the word of the Holy Spirit. So again, the sort of person who makes a division between honoring the work of the Spirit and believing and teaching and practicing the word of God, mark it, that person is not filled with the Holy Spirit. He is not keeping in step with the Holy Spirit because he is denigrating the magnificent work of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God. There, there is nobody filled with the Holy Spirit who will think lightly and speak lightly of the Word of God, which is the Word of the Holy Spirit. Can I get an amen? Fourth, we see this work promised and provided. This work of revelation and inscripturation, we see it promised and provided. And for that, uh, let's go to John chapter 16. So in the upper room discourse, John 14 through 17, Jesus says a lot about the coming work of the Holy Spirit. And in John chapter 16, he says this, which is often misapplied, misinterpreted. He says in verse 12, I've got a lot still to say to you, but you can't bear it right now. Verse 13, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak from himself, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. Now, many people read that and apply that to all Christians. Well, if so, then this has never happened. This has never once happened. You can't say 
that all Christians have been guided into all the truth, or, or that they prophesy. Which Christians did he guide into all the truth? The Baptists or the Presbyterians? The Methodists or the Lutherans? I mean, the, among Christians, there's great division, but what body of men has no division and was led into absolute truth and prophesied of the future? The men who he's talking to, the apostles. And that's who he's speaking to, and that's who he's making this promise to, that the Spirit would come to them, the apostles, and guide them into all the truth and enable them to write prophecy. So that is why the New Testament is and is nothing but the truth that Christ wanted spoken. He spoke what he spoke during his earthly days, but he still had more to say. And so he said that through uh, Paul, and he said it through Peter and, and so forth. We have the, the, Old, the New Testament as a result of that. Uh, Paul says more about this in 1 Corinthians 2, and that's the next verse, 1 Corinthians 2, 11 through 13. Another verse, uh, section that we will, we will misapply if we don't understand it is spoken of the apostles, Paul speaking as an apostle. And speaking as an apostle, I'm going to go back a verse. Verse 10, he says, but to us, God has revealed them, these deep things, through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God, the Holy Spirit then. And he says, for who among men knows the depths of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so the depths of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the depths graciously given to us by God. Now attend closely of which depths we also speak not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual depths with spiritual words. So what is Paul saying? He's saying that by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, they are writing Spirit-breathed words. They are writing of the depths of God because the Holy Spirit reveals those depths to them. And so, note again, it's the words that God guides them to use, not just the thoughts, but the actual Scripture itself that they are writing the words of God. So, again, you hear people say nonsense things about how, well, the, the prophets and the, the, the apostles never claimed inspiration. And that's not at all true. And you'll hear another idiot thing. You hear people call themselves red-letter Christians, which just means they're apostate Christians because they reject part of the Word of God. Uh, really, I, I'm not a fan of red-letter Bibles, as most of you already know. I think that if red-letter is meant to distinguish the words of God, well then, the whole Bible should be in red letters, so might as well just keep it black and understand that it's all the Word of God. But look at 1 Corinthians, and this is a killer, 1 Corinthians 14, 37. It's the next verse in your outline, 1 Corinthians 14, 37. And see what Paul writes and how he applies what he just said to us. He's talking about some contentious things about worship, and he makes this note in verse 37. If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. Now, when Paul uses the word God, who does he usually mean? Which person of the Trinity does he mean by God usually? The Father. And which person of the Trinity does he mean by Lord usually? So what he's saying is that what he's writing right now in 1 Corinthians is Jesus' commandment. So usually what somebody means when he says he's a red-letter Christian is he doesn't like what the Bible says about women 
or he doesn't like what the Bible says about homosexuality, or he doesn't like what the Bible says about this, that, or the other thing. And if he thinks Jesus didn't speak directly about it, he just slices Jesus off from the apostles, who Jesus said he would send his spirit to so that he could go on talking. So you see, the New Testament is the teaching of Jesus, and Jesus uh, affirms the whole Old Testament, so that also is the mind of Jesus. But so uh, it is illegitimate to say, well, I follow Jesus, not Paul. Well, if you follow Jesus, you'll follow Paul because what Paul wrote was the Lord's commandment. And the reason why he did it was not because he was wicked smart, which he was, he was wicked smart, but it wasn't that. It was because the Holy Spirit showed him the depths of God and gave him the words to express those in, you see? So this is why we, we can and must insist that what we have in the Bible is we have the actual word of God. What we have in the New Testament, we, we have the teaching of Christ. Not Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John only, but also Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and so on, until Revelation. This is the words of Christ brought through the apostles by the Holy Spirit. So promised and provided. You see, Jesus promised the Spirit would lead them into all truth, and indeed, the Spirit did lead them into all truth, so that what we have in Scripture is the commandment of Jesus. So now, let's talk about this truth applied. Number five, we've seen it explained, shown, stated, promised, and provided, and now we see it applied. Uh, eh, it's easy enough. Turn to Psalm 95. It's right in the middle of your Bible, so that's pretty easy to find, hard to go too wrong. And then, assuming we can all count, you figure which one's Psalm 95. So you go to Psalm 95. Now, the Psalm doesn't say who wrote it, but the New Testament says that it's in David, so very possibly David wrote it. We're just going to start in the second half of verse 7. Today, and we'll read verses 7b through 11. Today, if you hear his voice... Do not harden your hearts as in Meribah, as in the day of Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers tried me. They tested me, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation, and said they are a people who wander in their hearts, and they do not know my ways. Therefore I swore in my anger, they shall never enter into my rest. Okay, those words ring in your mind. You can leave that and now turn to Hebrews chapter 3. That's what goes in that next blank. Hebrews chapter 3. So in Hebrews chapter 3, starting with verse 7, we read, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoke me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by... And by this point, you're thinking, Hey... That's what we just read. That was, that's Psalm 95 right there. That's exactly right. He's, saw, he's quoting that same thing we just read from Psalm 95. And who does he say is speaking there? Verse 7, the Holy Spirit. Now that, that's very important. You, you say, okay, I see that's important, but you, you already said that. 
You already showed that. You already made that point. The Old Testament is the word of the Holy Spirit. Ah, yeah, but that's not where I'm going right now. So if you turn, if you just look over at chapter 4, verse 7, he goes back to that psalm and he says, saying through David. So he, he, he seems to say that psalm was written by David. So when did David live? You know in round numbers around when David lived? Around 1000 B.C., around 1000 B.C. So how long ago is that from when he's writing? Well, about a thousand years. <laughs> about a thousand years. Okay, about a thousand years. And what does he say? Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit... What's the next word? Nice and loud. Said? Says. Is that past tense or present tense? Why, that's the present tense. You don't need to be a grammar, a grammar teacher, although all you homeschoolers are grammar teachers, but... That's the present tense. The Holy Spirit says, is saying, currently is saying this. Currently is saying something from a thousand-year-old scripture. So you say to the Holy Spirit, so what's new? What do you want to say? And the Holy Spirit opens his mouth, if I may, and he speaks Psalm 95. That's what he wants to say. Well, how can something a thousand years old be present tense? I'm glad you asked. Look at Hebrews 4.12. And we ask ourselves if we really believe it, because we read it often enough. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is what? Living. And many charismatics refer to Scripture as being just the dead letter. They need the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But Scripture, scripture says the word of God is living and active, and sharper than any two-edged sword, and pierces right down to the very heart of us, the very soul of us, the very depths of us. The Holy Spirit says this because the Holy Spirit is eternal. He's timeless. He's unchanging. And what He has said, He always said, and He still says. This is the Spirit speaking. And so, let me turn back to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. God, having spoken long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, spoke to us in His Son. God now has said everything He is going to say. We have every word we need from God. In Scripture, we have every word of God that we need for any situation. And so it is the living Word of God. And if someone said, oh, well, I, I really want to hear what God says now. Me too. Here you go. This is what God says now. Well, I really want to hear the Holy Spirit speaking to me. Here you go. Well, I want to hear Him speak to me out loud. Well, read it out loud. And there you go. Because this is the Word of God. It's the living Word of God. And so, I, you know, this is one of those things. I've taught this before, and I know that I can teach it 10 more times, and somebody's still not going to hear it because this is the way we are. I'm the same way. But I'll try again to say it just as forcefully as I know. Do I believe God speaks today? Yes, I do. And this is His complete vocabulary. Everything God says today is Scripture. And you want to make the case to me, well, He didn't say enough. He's got to say more. Uh, we'll have an interesting conversation. But every word we need from God is here. So that means no Christian should say, God told me if the next words out of your mouth is not, uh, 
a quotation from Scripture. You're not a prophet, by the way, and you're not an apostle. And the way, and does God speak to you though? Yes, He does. He speaks to you and me the exact same way through the exact same database, and that database is Scripture. So yes, we have the living, present, powerful words of God, and we have it in Scripture, and we have it in Scripture alone. And Christians should not denigrate Scripture by speaking of personal impressions and ideas and experiences as if they were on a level. Let me just tell you, somebody will often say, well, no, I'm not saying it's on a level of Scripture. It's just something God said to me. Well, does God just stop by to chat then? Is that what you're saying? I mean, is there, is there any, any time in, in Scripture where God's words are prefaced by just saying, just wanted to share? But what do we normally read? Thus saith the Lord. This is the word of God. This is the command of God. This is the law of God. God doesn't just share. He doesn't just say. He doesn't chat. He's, everything that we need to hear from him is here. And I'll tell you what, if you say I'm not convinced, well, then you master everything here. And if that's not enough, let's talk. You perfectly understand here everything in Scripture, and you live it perfectly, and you still find it in, uh, insufficient, well, then let's talk. But you would be the first person since the Garden of Eden, except the Lord Jesus. Everything we need is in Scripture. It is God-breathed. It is living. It is the Word of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit speaks today, and He speaks exclusively in Scripture. So let's start, at least, the present and individual works of the Spirit, Roman numeral 1. And the work I want to talk to you about today is the work of regeneration. So the present and individual works of the Holy Spirit. So you see, we have the works outside of us like creation, preservation, and revelation. They, they affect us, but they're outside of us. But now these works are internal to the Christian. And the work of regeneration is, is a chief one. So let's explain what regeneration is. Thankfully, Scripture does that for us. Turn to Ezekiel 36 and verse 25. Uh, 26, sorry. Ezekiel 36 and verse 26. Not too hard to find. It's after the middle of your Bible and a few big books on. Proverbs, Isaiah, Ezekiel are the big books. Jeremiah, sorry, Ezekiel, Proverbs, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. The big books. Ezekiel 36 and verse 26. Uh, through the whole book, God's been talking about what an absolute horror Israel is and has been spiritually. Whatever is going to stop that. The whole history of Israel has not stopped it. That cycle of, of apostasy renewal, apostasy renewal, each renewal a little less and each apostasy a little more, that's through the whole Old Testament. So what's he going to do different? This is what he's going to do different. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And that, in short, is what regeneration is. God doesn't soften the stone. He doesn't make the stone better. 
He doesn't make the stone softer. He takes it out and replaces it with a heart of flesh. This is a a new nature. This is a new birth, as you know Scripture also says, as we'll see. Uh, This same idea is spoken of in many images. Another is uh, Ephesians 2.5. Ephesians 2.5. I'll just, I'll read to you. God has said, in this passage, God has said that we're dead in trespasses and sins. And everyone who wants to keep some of the glory for man always makes that dead be not quite so dead. You know, only mostly dead. But Scripture says we're dead, dead, dead. We're we're in need of not helping, but of life. And that's what God does for the spiritually dead uh, who he wishes to save. Ephesians 2, 5, even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So, regeneration is the producing of new life as a work of God's grace. Uh, Theologian George Smeaton said, the Puritans taught that the regeneration of the nature is not less important than the justification of the person. I need to be born again as much as I need the righteousness of Christ credited to me. I need a new record, yes, but I need a new heart. And that's what regeneration provides. In fact, I think in my little green book, I put it just that way. God doesn't just give us a new record. He gives us a new heart. Spurgeon says wonderfully, this is very good. I mean, Spurgeon, I said Spurgeon. Spurgeon said, to fashion a world has less difficulty in it than to create a new life in an ungodly man. In other words, it's easier to make the world than to regenerate a sinner. For in the creation of the world, there was nothing in the way of God. But in the creation of the new heart, there is the old nature opposing the spirit. The negative has to be removed as well as the positive produced. So our fall into sin affected every part of our nature. And so to save us, every part of our nature must be renewed must be regenerated, must be made new and transformed. So that's explained briefly in Scripture. Number two, let's see it expounded, just pound, just put the word pound in there, expounded as a work of the Holy Spirit. And we'll note several things. First of all, it is a work of the Holy Spirit on His initiative. On His initiative, not something we do. John chapter 3. If you can turn there, these are familiar words. John 3, 1 through 8, I'll just read some of these verses. To this very religious man, Nicodemus, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, that cleansing that we saw in Ezekiel, not baptism, but God's cleansing of us, born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Again, verse 6, that which has been born of the flesh is flesh, and that which has been born of the Spirit is spirit. I can never produce new birth in myself. Charles Finney and others have taught that you can. No, 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 no. What comes from the flesh is flesh. A new nature must come by the Holy Spirit. And how, does, how do I make that happen? Billy Graham wrote, once wrote a book called How to Be Born Again. And I've thought many times that should be a very short book. Uh, if he read verse 8 here, because what does verse 8 say? The wind blows where it wishes, where it wishes. It blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. 
so is everyone who has been born of the Spirit. It is not something I make happen. It happens at the sovereign prerogative of God, of God the Holy Spirit. He regenerates. He, as Paul says, quoting Scripture, he shows mercy to whom he shows mercy, and whom he wills he hardens. He regenerates whom he regenerates, is what Scripture says. It is on his initiative. And, letter B, it is an act of sheer mercy and grace. Not with a little help from me. In fact, despite everything I do, it's an act of God. Turn to Titus chapter 3. There's a wonderful, wonderful section. Titus chapter 3 and verses 4 through 6. So this is where you remember I said, don't panic. We are going to end up rolling some of this over. So I'm not, I won't keep you here till 1.30. Probably. Titus 3, verses 4 through 6. But when the kindness and affection of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not by works which we did in righteousness, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we would become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. There is the work of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in saving a sinner. Trinitarian beautiful glory to God alone. Salvation is a work of God alone with zero help from me. And if you say, well, really what makes it happen is my free will, my positive uh, volition, my anything in the world, well, then you split the glory with God and you've got a different gospel than the Bible. Because the Bible gospel ends up with all the glory going to God. Salvation is a work of God. Again, Spurgeon He says, I delight in this sharing of the great work by the glorious Trinity in unity. I love to see the Father, Son, and Spirit all taking part in the salvation of the elect. Just as in the creation, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And there was a council held to to decide as to that early work. So here, it is not merely one one of the persons of the Trinity, but all three who were concerned in the greater work of man's new creation. It is sheer mercy and grace. And finally, it is preceding and producing faith. In other words, we believe because we're born again. We're not born again because we believe. It is not faith that causes regeneration. A dead, God-hating, lost sinner who wants nothing to do with the Word of God somehow believing and submitting to something he hates and wants no part of. No, we're regenerate, and being born again, we believe. said in many verses, and the one we'll look at is 1 John 5, verse 1. 1 John 5, verse 1. Again, I'm going to ask you a grammar question. So, 1 John 5, 1, everyone who believes, past tense or present tense? Present tense. Everyone who believes right now today that Jesus is the Christ, has been born, past tense or present tense? Past, to be specific, it's actually a perfect tense. 
has been born of God. So my faith today is a result of having been born again by the act of God. Has been born of God, and everyone who loves the one who gives new birth loves also the one who's been born of him. So my faith is a result and a mark. How do you know if somebody's born again? Is he a believer? If he's a believer, he's been born again. Because there is no faith in a God-hating lost person. There's no saving faith in a God-hating lost person. Again, one more Spurgeon. He says, to believe in Jesus is a better indicator of regeneration than anything else. And in no case did it ever mislead. Faith in the living God and his son Jesus Christ is always a result of the new birth. And can never exist except in the regenerate. Whoever has faith is a saved man. And this is where I'll end, and I'm, I'm, just, I'm tickled that by providence, uh, I should be preaching this to you today. <laughs> because today marks 51 years ago that the Lord converted me. 51 years ago today, the Lord converted me. And how did I know I was born again? Well, I had heard the uh, gospel many times. I'd heard of Jesus many times. I'd seen calls to Christ many times. And every time, I hated them. And I wanted nothing to do with it. I felt very superior. I was very sneering, very disdainful. It was nothing I wanted any part of. And I knew I had all the answers. But not February 11, 1973. God had been doing a work on my heart, and I was miserably crushed under my sin and under the knowledge of my lostness and my need. And my, my need that if I ever was going to know God, it'd have to be on His terms. I would never find God. He'd have to find me. He'd have to, he'd have to give Himself to me. I would never have the sincerity or the depth or the goodness or the anything that it took to find God. And I, I went with a Christian friend who... Van Nuys Baptist, pastored at the time by Pastor Harold Fickett, who'd never met me and never met me since, and he preached a sermon that just absolutely nailed me to my pew. Every word was God talking to me through that gospel. What had changed the gospel? How did he find this new gospel that suddenly was, was germane to me and spoke to me? What was this new Jesus he invented that, that was so compelling and that I knew I needed to have as my Savior and Lord? How did he find that new Jesus for me? Well, he didn't, did he? But what was new? I was new. God worked in my heart and gave me a new heart. And this gospel I despised and this Jesus I wanted nothing to do with, I suddenly realized I needed more than anything both. And when I found out that I could go and pray and call on him to be my savior, you bet I want to do that. Now, how did I ever figure that out? I didn't. This is a work of God's sheer grace and mercy. Um, finding the most unlikely person and the most difficult person and pledging himself to him forever and making me his child and showing in all the years since long-suffering, long-suffering, Mercy, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. I praise God and I am delighted to teach to you this is, this is what God does in saving a sinner. I know it. Do you know it? You need to know it. If you say, I don't think I do know it, well then I urge you, call on the Lord Jesus. Make no delay. There is nothing more important that you have to see to. Call on the Lord Jesus Christ. Search for him. Call on him to be your savior. Bow your knee before him. And Jesus says, the one who comes to me, I will absolutely not cast out. 
So you see the Holy Spirit is not a minor add-on character in Scripture. It's absolutely crucial to the universe, and He's absolutely crucial to us as individual Christians. I say with no exaggeration whatsoever, we wouldn't even be Christians if it weren't for the Holy Spirit. Amen? Not any part of it. And so indeed, in the 4th century, the Nicene Creed says very well, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and the life giver, who proceeds from the Father, who with the Father and Son is to be worshipped and glorified, who spoke through the prophets. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this, your word. Thank you for its truth. Thank you for its sufficiency. I pray for the work of God, the Holy Spirit, to bring every part of this sermon that was true to your word to each heart here, impress it on each heart and on each mind and in each memory and in the way each sees his or her Christian life. And I do pray for all who've come in here not knowing the Lord Jesus, that they will hear the word of God and the gospel of Christ with power and be drawn to saving faith in him. In Jesus' name, amen.